Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, it's great to be with you sharing uh, this day as the others. We came, I think, um, hoping for beautiful scenery and a warm welcome. And like the Queen of Sheba, I want to say the half has not told us in either respect. You've been so warm, so welcoming, made us feel very much at home. We really appreciated it. And on top of the uh, amazing scenery and the fantastic welcome, there's been a great deal of uh, spiritual appetite, uh, attentive listening, and a desire to hear and to digest and to grow. And there's nothing more gratifying for a speaker from God's Word than that. It's very marked in this group, and I just want to affirm that and encourage you in that. As was uh, suggested earlier, it you can't really do a kind of overview of Proverbs in five sessions very easily. I mean, I could imagine doing one in Ephesians, and I imagine even doing one Samuel, because you can say, well, we've got from here to here, and then here to here, and then even if you have, it has to be a bit sketchy, you can kind of fill in the bits. The very nature of Proverbs is that there's a lot of material and a lot of individual subjects. And after our introduction, we've just been able to look at four of those, and we're coming on uh, to, to the last one now. If you... Uh, were, if your, your interest has been sparked at all, um, you uh, could check out some of the other topics which I covered when I preached to the list at Eden. Uh, they're all, all sermons are in audio uh, format on our church website. Uh, and what we did there was just to work through what Proverbs says about money, about parenting, about marriage and relationships, uh, about friendship, about envy, about planning for the future and getting guidance for the future about anger, about pride, about prayer. Actually, Proverbs has quite a bit to say about prayer. Uh, about failure. That's quite an interesting subject because so much of Proverbs is that, you know, you've got to do this and be wise. What, what happens when you fail? It's got some stuff to say about failure, which is very helpful. About social and economic justice, about government and leadership. And then a, a stream in Proverbs, again, a bit like the one on failure, just about personal brokenness and uh, what that is like. Anyway, as I've said, you can uh, chase those up on the Eden website, uh, if you choose to do so. This morning we're thinking about work and about sluggardliness. I wonder if anyone here is already anticipating the Monday morning feeling tomorrow. Actually, I understand one or two of you uh, will be having a bank holiday, because there's a bank holiday in the Republic of Ireland, so good on you, and uh, we hope you enjoy that, the rest of us. Actually, I I shouldn't say that because uh, I get a Monday morning feeling in a big way, but I get it on Tuesdays because I have Monday as my day off. So the rest of you are going to work, I'm having a lie-in, but then I I get it Monday evening and Tuesday uh, morning. Sluggardliness. We were uh, sitting around having dinner uh, when I was going to be preaching on uh, this topic the first time round, and I thought I would say something clever, and I said to the family, sluggardliness, you know, it sounds like a character from Harry Potter. And one of the kids said, actually, Dad, there is a character in Harry Potter called Professor Slughorn. It's the professor of potions, and i completely forgotten. Maybe that's a good name for, or a good activity for someone called Slughorn. Sluggardly, is, it's almost like a potion has taken over us and has made us lethargic and slothful. One of the ways that Proverbs um, teaches us and kind of grabs our attention and communicates with us, is to create these almost rather cartoonish kind of uh, characters. Uh, The simple person who gets seduced by the prostitute. The fool who appears again and again. Uh, The wise man uh, who uh, acts in a wise and sensible way in different sorts of situations. And another of those 
characters that Proverbs creates and uses as a vehicle for communication is the character of the sluggard. And from that we get this English noun, sluggardliness, which I don't suppose is one you use uh, all that often, but actually it uh, has such a kind of ring to it that uh, I've preserved it, and it's what we'll be thinking about through today. Proverbs, then, overall is about wisdom, and wisdom is about understanding how life works and living with the grain of how life works, both in the natural world that God has made and in the human world, which uh, uh, God understands perfectly. The opposite of understanding how life works and not acting wisely, is folly. And one big aspect of folly and foolishness in Proverbs is sluggardliness and laziness. It comes back to it again and again, and we've heard a number of the verses connected with it. The sluggard is a slightly comic character, more so, I think, than the fool is, although there are moments when the fool looks pretty stupid too. And uh, some of the funniest Proverbs are connected with the sluggard. I particularly like the one of the... uh, the sluggard who's kind of having his meal and uh, he's so lazy that he's hungry but he reaches out to get something and he can't be bothered to bring it back to his mouth to feed himself. It's really daft kind of an image. Or or the one of the the sluggard who um, in a quite safe environment says, oh there's a lion outside I can't go out. There's no lion at all we'll come back to that. But although these are funny and they're intended to make us laugh I think I think many proverbs are There is sadness there, because sluggardliness is a tragedy as well as a comedy. In fact, more of a tragedy than a comedy. If we think of the world of work and the consequences of laziness and sluggardliness in the uh, world of work, they're very serious. Now, I suspect that in our culture, in our context, overall, being lazy at work is not a big problem because it's hard to get away with in a very consistent way. And I suspect the starting point for most of us in terms of our working lives is feeling rather overworked, feeling a lot of stress and pressure and expectations and targets and other people have set things for us to do which we have to match up to. My observation over the years is that working life in that respect has got increasingly stressed both in the Uh, public sector with so many more targets and the the deep professionalisation of jobs as people are told specifically what they should do rather than getting professional discretion and in the uh, private sector where um, uh, work is much less secure and there's even more of a kind of dog-eat-dog mentality. The biblical image that may come to mind in terms of your work is not so much that of the sluggard but that of Exodus 5 where the people of Israel were told to make more bricks in the time and to use their own straw as well and So you'd be coming to this with a sense of busyness and hassle. And so hearing a sermon on laziness and sluggardliness may seem rather ironic. But actually sluggardliness affects us all and affects us in many ways. It may surprise you to know that hyperactive people, high-energy people, suffer from sluggardliness in their own way just as much as low-tempo folk. It is pervasive and it is destructive. And we're going to see how pervasive and destructive it is and also how it can be transformed. But to do that, we need something to compare it with. We need a kind of foil. And so we're going to look first at the teaching or some of the teaching of the book of Proverbs about wisdom at work, what it looks like to be wise at work with the uh, heading diligence. Then we're going to look at folly at work, sluggardliness, and then at the transformation of our work. But actually within that, we're going to look 
uh, in detail uh, or a bit more, no, in a kind of broader way, at how sluggardliness affects different parts of life. Now, first of all, wisdom at work, diligence. And once again, just to remind you, I want you to hear now the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is your own personal coach and counsellor and encourager and exhorter, who understands you better than you know yourself, who understands your work better than you know it or anyone else in your company or institution or profession understands it. He is the great expert, and it is his voice that we need to hear. The book of Proverbs, then, in terms of its uh, attitude to work, places a high value on plain, old-fashioned, hard work. The law of consequences, the law of cause and effect, both apply to work. And so the key to advancing well in work is to work hard so that you get the reward for your work. And we can find that in a number of different verses. So chapter 14 and verse 23 all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. It's basic principle of life. And so Proverbs would want to say to us, know the rules, understand how it works. There are very few ways of getting rich quick and very few ways of getting rich without any work. You are going to pass those exams by sitting around drinking coffee, moaning about how hard they are, or endlessly checking other people's Facebook updates about how they're getting on with their exam revision. At some point, you're just going to have to get on and revise or you won't pass the exam. Chapter 12 and verse 24. Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in forced labour. That's an interesting one. Look at that for a moment. Working harder tends to bring more responsibility, more independence, more ability to be your own boss. Being lazy tends the other way to being more controlled and to having less responsibility. It's the hard work that brings independence, control, responsibility, even promotion. Laziness means working below your potential and having much of it prescribed for you. Then notice another of the rules. It's just realism, chapter 12 and verse 11. Those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. The contrast by someone who just gets on with it and works for their living to produce the food that they need. The contrast of that with a certain sort of person who's always chasing some completely unrealistic scheme. Sometimes as a pastor one has this in the sense that he thinks they should be a missionary or a Christian work of some kind or you know, he's got some, some idea they haven't done very well in their working life but there's always something over the horizon that's going to, to bring something to them. That's not the way life works. Life is about getting on and working the land and producing the food. Knowing the rules. And then Proverbs, again, this is very practical and real. Proverbs says we should know our work. We should know what our work is and how to do it. That means learning how a job works. Getting into a profession, entering it, understanding it, understanding uh, the different aspects to the job and the different parameters and the expectations and the ways to get things done. And because Proverbs is written in a largely agricultural community, it uses the example uh, of a shepherd. So chapter 27, in this lovely little pastoral symphony. Be sure you know, chapter 27, verse 23, be sure you know the condition of your flocks. 
give careful attention to your herds. This is uh, what we can transfer more generally into professional and working life. Um, met someone who's into printing. And there's an expert in that area. It's good. That was my original uh, profession before I went into the ministry. I remember people who just understood the printing industry. They, they understood the technicalities of it, like how to get something looking good on a prep page, how to prep up a machine, all the different bits. And it, was, it was quite a thrill to go from that, from a kind of more academic background, uh, into something and just see these experts. And I wasn't in it very long, but I, I learned a little bit there. Many of you are professionals in different areas, doctors, teachers, met a number of engineers, others of you as well, in the academic sphere too. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. It's right to give ourselves in the right way, in God's calling, to our professional and work callings, and being the best we can be within them. Giving careful attention to the herds. Well, for the shepherd uh, uh, or the herdsman, that meant understanding uh, cows and sheep and becoming an expert on them. For us, it's whatever it is in our situation. Understanding how children respond to certain kinds of discipline or instruction. Understanding uh, what works in an operating theatre. Getting genned up, getting all the qualifications that we need. Proverbs and, uh, urges us in this direction. And uh, it seems to me throughout history, the Lord Jesus Christ has been greatly honoured by serious Christian professionals who are the best they can be within their profession. Notice what he uh, goes on to say. Not just is there that kind of focused professional engagement there. is just a sense of uh, how uh, we need to keep working at this. Verse 24. For riches do not endure forever, and a crown is not secure for all generations. Why, why does the author throw that in? I think what he's saying is you can't rest on your laurels. It's not just going to keep going automatically. We need to keep working at this. My wife talks about prof- continuing professional development, CPD. She has to do a certain amount each year and give an account to it, uh, to her professional body that she's got the CPD under her belt for that particular year. I think Proverbs would very much agree. The salary isn't just going to keep coming in. We have to work at what we have. The crown is not secure for all generations. And then there is a trust in God here. Verse 25. When the hay is removed and new growth appears and the grass from the hills is gathered in, the lambs will provide you with clothing and the goats with the price of a field. Just to understand what's going on here, it, it, it reflects the interplay of work and God. Man's labour, as someone has said, and God's nurture. It seems to me that farmers are often closer to that than we are with a very big dependence on things just happening. You know, the seed coming up, once the seed's in, they can't do much about it. To pray for rain, perhaps. It applies in every area of work, though. We do our bit, and we must trust that God will do his. And then there's the sharing of the reward. The lambs come to provide them with clothing, and the goats with the price of the fields, so and they can be sold on. The lambs can be turned into lovely sheepskin jackets or booties or whatever they have. And then verse 27... Then you will have plenty of goat's milk to feed your family and to nourish your female servants. The reward is to be shared by others. And Proverbs is very big on this. When you get into the uh, teaching of Proverbs and the uh, area of uh, money and generosity and stinginess, Proverbs is very clear about the sharing of the rewards. We could back up from it and say that there are rewards from our work which will be shared with others, supporting our own household, but it goes beyond that. In terms of generosity to the church, to charitable causes of different kinds. 
And, of course, the whole area of wealth creation is a very important one. That benefits the whole community, too, as jobs are created, wealth is created. I often pray for the wealth creators in our church. And I'll do this from the pulpit when everyone else is there, because I think it so rarely happens, and yet they're so important. People beavering away in their internet startups and their, their different companies of different kinds, they're creating the wealth. They're creating the wealth that pays for the dentists and the teachers and the pastors as well as creating jobs. And so I try to pray for them. And I think uh, biblical teaching on this is uh, neglected and uh, needs resuscitation. We need wealth creators. Those of you who aren't necessarily working in the professions that are always seen as uh, being the great humanitarian ones, like, uh, like, uh, like medicine or, or education or whatever, you too have a vital part in the community. You're creating wealth to pay for those other things so that society as a whole can benefit uh, from them, and they can be underwritten uh, financially. And it's through working hard that that happens. So, wisdom at work means working hard. And I suspect there are many people here who are working in a careful, sustained, diligent way at work. I get that feel from those of you uh, who I've spoken to. And if that is you, praise God. Praise God. The Lord Jesus Christ is working out his wisdom about working life in your lives. And I'm sure many people are observing that, whether you realise it or not. But now we come on to our main topic, which is sluggardliness, which is the opposite. And here we need to uh, look at the sluggard and the way he's portrayed and just look at his life. And we're back in chapter 6 now. And one of the problems with the sluggard is that he just won't get going. Chapter 6, verse 9. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? He doesn't use an alarm clock. He doesn't wake up with the rising of the sun, or he doesn't respond to it. And probably verse 10 is the sluggard's response. So it's a dialogue. How long will you lie there, you sluggard, says one voice. When will you get up from your sleep? And then the sluggard replies, No, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. No, oh, I'll get up in a bit. Oh, it won't matter if I'm late. Oh, I, 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 I don't really need to have a quiet time before I go to work. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, just let me sleep a bit more. And then the warning, verse 11, And poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. There's not an outright refusal from the sluggard. He just dodges the issue. He just procrastinates. He hits the snooze button one more time and the opportunity slips away and in the end it's a disaster. What have you been putting off? What are you procrastinating about right now? You see, in Proverbs, the person who procrastinates is a sluggard. So the sluggard can't start things, nor can the sluggard finish things. 1924. Sluggards bury their hands in the dish and will not even bring them back to their mouths. Some of us are the opposite of this. There's a, a way of profiling the way people work in teams called uh, the Belbin Team Profile System. I don't know if anyone's been through that. I done it a couple of times and done it with some of my staff. It's quite interesting to say, see these eight or nine different ways that people behave in teams. And one of them is the completer finisher. And the completer finisher always get things done. 
And there's one member of my team who's a complete, complete finisher. And one of the things about uh, the Belbin um, kind of profiling thing is that you not only fill in a kind of form to do it for yourself, but you do it for your work colleagues as well. And uh, she got herself down as a completer finisher, and all the rest of us got her down as a completer finisher too. She's an absolute complete completer finisher. In fact, I said to her once, you know, I think there was one time you didn't do something I, I, I asked you to. And she said, what's that? <laughs> Whereas, I mean, the rest of the team, there's all sorts of things I've asked them to do and they haven't done. Many, maybe some of you are like that, but many of us actually have to press on to finish things off. And it's a characteristic of sluggardliness to start things and to fail to see them through. It's a little bit of a, a sluggardly aspect to some of my leadership. I tend to initiate things at elders', elders, elders meetings and we'll have a discussion about them. And there's the, say, we've, we've got from A to B, but actually we need to do C to D to make anything happen. And uh, I'm not very good at getting from B to, to C to D and so things get stuck. They're very gentle, perhaps a bit too gentle about it. What about you? Are there some specific tasks you've taken on at home, at work, or at church, but you've not seen through? Is there an aspect of sluggardness in you there? What can you do about that? So the sluggard can't start things or finish things, and he, he, he avoids things as well in a rather paranoid fashion. I read this earlier. It's one of my favourites. The sluggard, 22.13. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the public square. It's a picture of exaggerated fears used as an excuse for inactivity. There's no lion out there. There's no lion at all. But he's inventing this spectre, this exaggerated fear to mean that he has an excuse for leaving the house. But it just looks so pathetic, doesn't it? Some of us have that kind of negative disposition. We're always sure things are going to work out badly. And it lose, makes us lose touch with reality and makes us into a bit of a sluggard. And there are fears that we have about going out of a comfort zone and doing something new, trying something different, going forward in something where the results don't seem guaranteed. And those fears, we... Are, we, we vastly inflate in our minds so that they're like roaring lions. And so, of course, we don't go beyond the comfort zone. But actually, they're just pussycats. They're just pussycats. There are very, very few real lions out there. And the lions that are there are chained up by Jesus. When we were planting a church a few years ago, we, we had to push through this a bit. For years, I'd resisted the idea. I'd created all, those, all these kind of lines in my mind about church planting and how the mother church would kind of collapse and how it wouldn't be a success and so on. Eventually, I got through that. Then I had to lead the whole congregation through that as well. And it, it was a little bit of a process for us. We had to spend a lot of time thinking about moving out in faith, getting beyond our comfort zones, doing something that was new and apparently a little bit risky for the Lord. I mean, it's not really risky, but it felt risky. And we got through it and the church has been planted now. But for a while, there were a number of us who just thought there was a lion out there and we couldn't possibly do it. Then we notice that the sluggard has an unhappy existence. Chapter 13, verse 4. A sluggard's appetite is never filled, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Chapter 21, verse 25 to 6. 
The craving of a sluggard will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. All day long he craves for more, but the righteous give without sparing. That's very interesting. I can't get into the detail of that, but if you wanted something to think about, the relationship between the two halves of verse 26 is is an interesting one to explore because there's a lot you have to fill in to make sense of it. But anyway... The main point is that the sluggard is restless with unsatisfied desires. It is a deeply unsatisfactory way to be. It's not a happy place to be, but a deeply unsatisfactory one. And it leaves him helpless because it all catches up with him in the end. Chapter 24, verse 34. I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone who has no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds and the stone wall was in ruins. Poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. In the end, sluggardliness catches up with us and uh, it's, it's not a happy thing. It affects us socially as well. Sluggardliness leaves the sluggard socially obnoxious. Chapter 10, verse 26. As vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so are sluggards to those who send them. Not quite sure why vinegar should set someone's teeth on edge. Perhaps if you've got holes in your teeth, would that be it, Debbie? You've got holes in your teeth, a little bit of vinegar gets in, and oh, that'd be horrible, wouldn't it? Certainly, we, we understand what's going on because we know what it's like to have smoke in the eyes. In the ancient world, messengers were vitally important, but a sluggard who'd been sent by someone was like getting smoke in your eyes, something that you'd hate. The modern equivalent would be, I don't know, an unreliable internet connection. Think how frustrating that is for you. That is what we're like to other people in our sluggardliness, socially obnoxious. And in contrast, we should think of the diligent person who gets on with them, is reliable, finishes them, and generally speaking, reaps the reward. Now, I wonder how this has started to hit you. I suspect that for all of us, there's been some aspect of this that has connected one way or another in our work and maybe in our lives more generally. I want us to go on to think about the transformation of our work through the Lord Jesus Christ and his work and his wisdom. But before we do, there's a deeper dimension to sluggardliness that we need to explore a bit. and We need to extend our application of it in our understanding of ourselves. And to do that, we need to do two things. We need to realise that at, our, at the heart of our sluggardliness are hearts that are not at rest in Christ and therefore set free to work. But we also need to understand that each of us has what Bill Hybels calls in his lovely little book on Proverbs, Making Life Work, some sort of selective sluggardliness. The sluggard in Proverbs is, a, is, is like a kind of caricature. It's a, now, there are very few people who are exactly like that. It's, it's put there so that it's a kind of a mirror for us to see different aspects of ourselves in. Each of us, Hybels argues, has some sort of sluggardliness, and we need to diagnose that before we go further. You see, sluggardliness is the refusal to be stirred into the right kinds of passion and commitment and activity. It's the, the one of the seven deadly sins that was called sloth, or sloth, sloth is an animal, sloth. 
a refusal to be stirred into the right kinds of passion and commitment and activity. It's not simply about idleness. There is a kind of idleness that is good and godly. There's a kind of resting from work, which uh, for most of us happens one day a week uh, on a Sunday, that is entirely right and is not sluggardly at all. In fact, it's a version of sluggardliness not to have a day off a week, in my view. Many of us need more of the right kind of idling over a coffee with a friend, taking time to walk along a riverbank on a summer's evening, idling with children rather than insisting that every moment we have them is kind of highly productive in some intense way. Holy idling over our prayer time when we simply linger in the presence of God. Far too few of us do that. There's a Welsh poet, R.S. Thomas, who said, What is this life if full of care we have no time to stand and stare? These things that I've just been talking about are the opposite of sluggardliness. They're not its first cousins. Because they are taking time, leisurely, measured time, with things that deserve our passionate commitment. but there is also this selective sluggardliness. Let me quote from Heibels here. Many of us who on the surface look like models of industry and diligence are suffering from a hidden disease called selective sluggardliness, a disease characterised by carefully constructed compartments where sluggardliness reigns. These little pockets of laziness or inactivity, though seemingly insignificant and nearly always unseen by others, will ultimately bring pain and heartache, even ruin, into our lives. Let's go through some of these. Sluggardliness at work. There are ways of being sluggardly at work that combine with frantic activity. Overwork can be generated, uh, can generate lots of kinds of sluggardliness. Not planning. Not prioritising. Not delegating. Not concentrating on one task, but flitting backwards and forwards. It seems to me that uh, our use of computers and the internet has made this very easy, and I I find this in my work. It almost always reduces efficiency. Not using email efficiently. People have calculated, the sort of people who have jobs where you need to focus for quite a while. Um, if if, If in the middle of that you think, oh, I'll just check an email, the average amount of time lost is 20 minutes. 20 minutes! I mean, I can't spare 20 minutes, and yet I do it all the time. Other kinds of selective sluggardliness at work, which can be combined with having uh, lots of energy output, not working on team dynamics, just pure inefficiency in our dealing with things. Last-minute it- uh, last itis, which puts such pressure on other people. Perfectionism, all-or-nothing thinking. Excessive anxiety, which is energy-sapping. Proverbs shows us that Jesus is interested in all these different things, even more interested than you are or your manager is or or the kind of efficiency coaching that you might get on some seminar. Jesus is interested in this selective sluggardliness at work and he wants to help us with with it. Then there is physical sluggardliness. Proverbs has a basic philosophy in which overindulgence in sleep is folly. I'll leave it to you to work out what that is for you, but that certainly is Proverbs' view of it. But it's not just too much sleep, it's about proper care of our bodies, stewarding these bodies, these temples of the Holy Spirit that God has given to us. Eating too much or eating too much of the wrong things, not exercising appropriately, just not caring for ourselves, it's all physical sluggardliness. I can think of an extremely wealthy Christian businessman I knew, not not a member of my church. He worked really hard, he had his own business, he sold it for, well I can't remember, it was... uh, a big eight-figure sum, I think. 
He'd earned his reward and he was generous with it. That he had health issues which he neglected and even abused with his diet. The result was he died prematurely. His children's children will never know their grandfather and his wife has a much longer widowhood than she would have done. There was a sluggardliness about the care of the body that was a tragedy in that man's life. Then there is financial sluggardliness. People are too busy to think about life insurance or pension provision or to work through budgets when they need to. Heibel speaks about those who spend more money than they have and say tomorrow they'll go on a budget, but tomorrow never comes. It's something I've noticed past through the number of people who, in a rather sheepish, sheepish way, talk to me about having debts that they run up on their credit cards. And what they've been doing is buying lots of consumer goods, putting them on the credit card, and then it rises and rises, and they've got a four-figure debt they've got to pay off. Financial sluggardliness. Then there's relational sluggardliness. This isn't so much about working life, but about the whole of life. There was a sluggardliness in Cain when he said to the Lord, Am I my brother's keeper? Sluggardliness is a refusal to get involved with others, to be committed to them. It's a me-first ideology. Sluggardliness is highly narcissistic and individualistic. It retreats into its own little world and just becomes hard and indifferent to the needs of others. It denies that we're members of society with obligations and responsibilities to each other. We're not just members of churches, though we should be. We're members of a wider civic society. We need to play our part in it. Sluggardliness hides the fact that we only become truly human in loving and serving one another. It leads to a lethargic indifference. It abdicates responsibility for the needs of others. Am I my brother's keeper? The sluggard says no. Got enough to worry about for myself. Heibel's writes about the father who sets sales records at work and has a four-figure handicap on the golf course but fails miserably to respond to the emotional needs of his wife and children. And when we look at the crying needs of so many of the poor and underprivileged in the world, we wonder if one of the greatest sins being committed in our world is that of sluggardliness and indifference to them. We don't care and we don't want to care. It's uncomfortable to think of children dying because they don't have a clean water supply, so we don't think about it. That is a form of sluggardliness. We hear God whispering to our conscience about our responsibilities to others, and we say, oh, I've got too much to worry about for myself. As a pastor and someone who's a bit of an introvert, I like my own company. That's a little cautious with people. This is something I have to keep working on. Otherwise, I'll say, oh, I, I can't be bothered to go out this evening. I can't be bothered to make that call. I can't be bothered to write that card or send that email. And yet, these are people I'm pastorally responsible for. And then the sluggardliness about personal growth. Heibel's writes about the men and women who fill their time with people but never tend to the soil of their interior lives. They never look deeply at the emotional and psychological realities which drive their behaviour, affect their goals and shape their relationships. Entirely unreflective. And we could uh, deepen that and talk about sluggardliness in relation to spiritual growth. As we go off the boil, we, we plateau off, we become spiritual couch potatoes. The sluggardliness with prayer, the sluggardliness with Bible reading, the sluggardliness with church attendance, sluggardliness when we are at church, but the sluggardliness with praise, does that affect you? I mean, generally speaking, I'm in church, I suppose I have to be there, but uh, generally speaking, I'm there, and you may be too, but actually it's possible to be in church and not really be in church. Yes, we've got our bodies there, but in such a state, with our mind preoccupied and we're worn out, 
And we come to sing a hymn, and actually we can hardly mouth the words. That's praise sluggardliness. Heibels writes about the mother who pours herself out at work and at home, but continually neglects her relationship with God. And then we wonder why the, the walls fall down. We wonder why there are no apples on the trees. Sluggardliness in prayer. Are we committed to praying regularly for the ministry of the word in our churches? Because that's the great engine of spiritual growth and change. Are we committed regularly in intercession to pray and pray and pray again for our unconverted friends? Because you see, they're affected by sluggardliness too. One of the major reasons people don't become Christians is that in many instances, not that they're strongly opposed to Christianity, at least on the surface, they're just apathetic. So often Christian unions, when they're having an outreach in Cambridge, they'll say it's one of their prayer requests. Can you pray about apathy in college? That's sluggardliness. It's just the modern word for it. A kind of spiritual lethargy. Oh, I can't be bothered to think about issues of faith and God. Sometimes it's just a superficial excuse. Much of the time it is reflective of a deep sin. That's why, that's why sloth was a, such a, a deadly sin, because it cut you off from God. How is it that people are going to have their sluggardliness overcome? Well, one of the ways... The Bible says it's by God's people witnessing to them and praying to them, uh, for them, not to them, praying to God for them. And it's not like there's a coin in the slot, out comes the convert kind of thing. But there is a relationship between hard work in outreach and prayer and in people being saved. And we've certainly no expectation that people will be saved unless we're praying for them in this way. I have an amazing example of... um, how this worked in our church last year, we, we didn't see very many conversions. I think there were only two, which is quite disappointing and quite makes us, makes us search ourselves a certain amount. But the, one of the converts was a young guy who had come over from Oxford to Cambridge. I'm not quite sure why, but he washed up in Cambridge, having graduated from Oxford. And he joined in our inquirers group, and he started coming in the evenings. He also joined an inquirers group in another city centre church and went to them in the mornings. And he, he kept going through these inquirers groups for about 18 months. It was quite amazing. In the end, he knew the answers to the questions better than most of the Christians who were there. So he was so clever, and they used to get him to answer the non-Christians' questions. But he still hadn't become a Christian. And we wondered about why this hadn't happened, and some of us tried to talk to him, and nothing seemed to enable him to uh, become a Christian. There was just something there. There was a resistance there. And then about a year ago, he emailed a number of people in both churches. He got to know quite a few at that point. And he said, um, look, I, I know I need to sort this out. Will you pray for me over the next week? So I thought, oh, well, that's great. And I, I suppose I tried to pray for him a bit anyway, and I tried to pray for him a bit more the next week, maybe another couple of times or something. And then got another email after a bit saying, hey, it's great, I've become a Christian. I was really pleased. I thought, you know, that's superb. Then in the autumn, some five, six months later, I got talking with the guy who runs our evangelistic group, or did at that time, about this guy who'd become a Christian. For some reason, we got talking about him, how he'd sent that letter, the email, and asked for the prayer, and all the rest of it. And uh, the guy who led the group said, yeah, he wasn't showing off, he was just, just stating reality. He said, yeah, when that email came, I fasted for that week. I said, what? He said, yeah, I fasted for that week so I could pray for him. I didn't push it at length, but I knew what he meant. He'd gone without food for a week so he could pray. 
He said, yeah, my wife, um, she was a teacher. She didn't think she could go into school without having eaten for a week. It didn't feel very realistic. But she got up an hour earlier every day for that week and prayed for the guy and for other people in the group. And I just thought, wow, what is the sluggardliness in my life that is preventing me committing myself to that kind of prayer? I don't know whether he would have become a Christian if they hadn't done that. Because the way God works is mysterious. But there was some sort of relationship. At heart, all kinds of sluggardliness are spiritual problems. And they're symptoms of spiritual sluggardliness. And it's, it's at this point we need to come to the Lord Jesus. And remember that there was no sluggardliness in Jesus. He set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. He didn't shirk back from the cross. Do you remember him saying in John's Gospel, I've completed all the work you gave me to do? He didn't miss out on any single bit. And his death counts in our place for all our indifference and lethargy and laziness and sluggardliness. There was no sluggardliness in him. He was the perfect balance of hard work and of rest, of getting out there with the people and then withdrawing to be on his own with God. In our terms, we could say he was the perfect balance of targets and goals, on the one hand, and flexibility when things changed, on the other. He models for us, and more than that, does for us, that perfect way of working that is completely unsluggardly. And what he says to us in Matthew chapter 11 is, Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's where we start in the transformation of our work, in the change of our sluggardliness. We come to Jesus with our weariness and our burdens, and we find rest in him. But too often we stop there, and we don't read the next verse, which says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And what is a yoke? It's something that you pull along. It's about work. It's about a life lived for him with his yoke and his burden upon us. That may mean the reordering of priorities. That may mean the re-narrating of the story of why we're at work anyway. That will mean popping the bubbles of our anxieties and working out that we're working for Jesus and not for self. And in dozens of other ways, ordering our lives his way, in his strength, so that we can live wisely. Proverbs loves to draw pictures from the natural world, and we enter our conclusion, <coughs> enter our conclusion with the one from what someone has called Ant College, chapter 6, verse 9. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? What is it for you? What's your sluggardliness? How do you need to get up from your sleep? Get up from it. Do it today. Come to Jesus. Find rest in your soul. Put his burden and his yoke upon you and go to work for him in his way and in his power. Os Guinness, in his book, The Calling, has this lovely kind of exhortation. Let me read it for you. Personally summoned by the creator of the universe, 
We are given meaning in what we do that flames out over every second and inch of our lives. Challenged, inspired, rebuked and encouraged by God's call. We cannot for a moment settle down to the comfortable, the mediocre, the banal and the boring. The call is always to the highest, the deepest and the furthest. Every time the marsh gas of sluggardliness rises from the swamps of modern life and threatens to overcome us, the call of God jerks us wide awake. Against the most sluggish temptation to feel, who cares? This is the supreme motivation. This is the ultimate why. Jesus has called us, and we are never more fully ourselves than when we're stretched in answering Jesus' call, and yet perfectly at rest in him. And there's no yawning in response to this call. It was a 17th century poet, George Herbert, who wrote about this. It's a kind of address to the whole nation of England, but we'll extend it for the benefit of you guys. O Britain, full of sin but most of sloth, spit out thy phlegm and fill thy breast with glory. Let's pray together. Lord, the image of the sluggard (coughs) radiates out from Proverbs and hits our lives in multiple ways. And we just bring to you now the points of contact we have felt. Areas and pockets of selective sluggardliness which you have uncovered and revealed to us. And we repent of our sloth and our lethargy, our indifference, our sluggardliness. And we praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, that there was no sluggardliness or sloth or lethargy in you. We praise you for the perfect balance of your life and the perfect completion of all you came to do. That you died in our place and for all of our sin, including these particular areas. Grant to each of us, Lord, to therefore find rest for our souls in you and your finished work. And from that rest, from the starting point of that rest, O Lord, may we live for you with passion, with commitment, with efficiency, with professionalism, but also with flexibility and compassion and heart. And in every area, give the very best of what you've given to us back to you in our lives. For your name's sake. Amen.